0: A Podcast One production.
1: The second half of January 2020. It seems like such a long, long time ago. The fires that had ravaged eastern Australia, they've been doused by some of the heaviest rains ever seen. People died, homes lost, lives destroyed, and it felt as though we'd all just barely gotten through it by the skin of our teeth. There's relief, there's a lot of worry, because what happened once, it could happen again, will happen again. We all know it. And as we came out of our homes and took off our N95 masks and took our first deep breaths, I came across this headline on the BBC website New China virus, warning against cover up as number of cases jumps. I scanned the article and dashed off a four line email to a close friend in the United States. Spring festival, new virus, spreading person to person. This one has everything. That BBC article, it started ringing alarm bells for me, and from that point, I started preparing for the pandemic that I knew in my bones was only just a matter of time. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology and the coronavirus pandemic transform the way we live and work. Now, Bill Gates famously predicted the pandemic in a 2015 TED Talk, and he lamented our lack of preparation. But the world that the pandemic created, this world that we're now living in, no one foresaw this. The pandemic initiated or radically accelerated a whole cascading set of transformations. Most people experienced more change in March and April of 2020 than in the whole of their lives before that. Almost every aspect of life has been touched. Whether we're sheltering in place or slowly, hesitatingly reopening for business, we know the world will never be the same. And those transformations, they aren't over. Like aftershocks following a massive earthquake, they will continue to ripple through our lives for years to come. The world we knew, the world we made confident predictions about, that world is gone. So we need to revisit what we thought we knew with some new questions. And in that spirit, On this episode of The Next Billion Seconds, we've invited back four of our guests from Series 2 and 3 to ask them what's happening, what's going to happen, and how we maintain our balance in the midst of unfathomable change. The phrase, a black swan event, is one that Australians find a bit confusing. It was once believed that there was no such thing as a black swan. That is, until Europeans arrived in Australia to learn that, yes, it's not just all venomous snakes and poisonous spiders. We have black swans as well. So the unexpected impossible, when it happens, that's a black swan event. It rewrites all of the rules. Now, we knew a pandemic would come. Pandemics have always come. Bill Gates looks a bit like a prophet because he did a TED Talk back in 2015 in which he pointed out how woefully unprepared we were for a pandemic that would inevitably come. So what can we learn from this? Well, for that, we'll turn to one of the great strategic thinkers we interviewed in Series 3. John Robb is an author. His brave new war opened my eyes to the realities of asymmetric conflicts, and also he's one of the keenest observers of our responses to the pandemic, its failures, and its successes. So it's with pleasure and with a bit of trepidation that we welcome John Ra back to the next billion seconds. Welcome back, John. Hi, Mark. Okay, so what do we now know about a black swan event, this global transforming event that we didn't really understand before?
2: A decade ago, we used to think of black swans as you know, purely unexpected events. I think it was maybe a holdover from the way we uh, thought about nine eleven in particular. And um, one thing we're learning, one thing I've discovered is that it's not so much the unexpected event, like a category of events. I mean, we've had a lot of pandemics in the past, some pretty recently. And we've had a lot of terrorist attacks in the past, but there are specific events within that category, that are complex events. They interact with the global system in a way that allows them to have lots of uncertainty and uh, lots of nonlinearities, meaning it amplifies in strange and unusual ways, and it causes you know all sorts of damage. And those kind of events are, are much more in tune with the idea of a black swan. In this case, we had the pandemic. And uh, this pandemic is kind of similar to what we had, you know, with with SARS and MERS and uh, swine flu and and uh, pandemics in the recent past. But there were some particular features of it that made it really extraordinarily hard for us to deal with. There was the asymptomatic transmission, and that threw uh, you know a lot of the calculations that, that that we had in terms of public health you know askew. Then there was this, you know, two week uh, incubation period. I mean, most respiratory viruses, I mean, it's a couple days. You burn through it quickly. Well, this one takes you know, two weeks to fully run its course. And that's a, not only a, a, a difficult thing to deal with in terms of your personal health, but it's also a very hard thing to quarantine against.
1: Because it really requires a massive shutdown quarantine in order to stop the spread.
2: Right. You don't just shut down for a couple of weeks. You have to shut down for months. It uh, you know amplifies the size and duration of, of the of the shutdown, and you know a lot of things have changed since we had you know our last you know little mini pandemic or a non complex you know complicated pandemic, is that the amount of travel and interconnectedness that we have today versus even you know, twenty years ago is like night and day. I mean, for instance, in China, you know, since SARS, there was you know four to five times the amount of travel. Inside the country alone. So when this virus hit us with its unique attributes, it um, traveled very, very quickly, and then we, you know, tried to formulate a response. And then we found out that it only targeted a certain subset of the population: um, the old and sick, people with chronic diseases. And what we found out is that the developed countries, the developed countries of the world, were more at risk than uh, younger countries. Countries where the median age was, you know, in the mid twenties. Median age for Europe and the U.S. and China were between thirty-eight and forty, much older. You know, with a subset of the population that was between thirty and forty percent that were vulnerable, which made things like herd immunity our standard strategy for for dealing with you know, respiratory illnesses ineffective. So all of this complexity made it really difficult for us to to deal with this this virus and um you know we only discover this as we go through it because it's not just the uh, the complexity that we see and the uncertainties that we see at the outset it's all the things that are uncovered as we interact with it as we try to solve it same thing with like 9/11 or the financial crisis it wasn't the initial event that was the worst it was Everything that followed that that flowed out of that. I mean, in terms of the money and the, and the lives lost, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan as a result of that event were much larger than the event itself. And the same thing with the financial crisis and and the austerity that paralyzed Europe and the U S for years causes the political instability that we see today. And with this, we're just getting started and we'll have the same effect later on. So one of
1: the things that we've seen, too, is that there's been different approaches to the bureaucratic response to this. And some approaches have been more effective than other approaches. And it looks to me like federated decentralized approaches have been able to mount quicker responses than highly centralized approaches. Are we seeing that from the different stories that are being told now?
2: I am not sure that's that's playing out that way. I mean – The highly centralized approaches that worked extremely effectively, mostly with the island nations and isolated nations, like places like New Zealand, Taiwan, uh, to a lesser extent Australia, South Korea, Japan, they were able to close the borders early and keep the level of transmission uh, low enough that they were able to respond. I mean, one thing with a complex crisis in a connected world is that you can't be selective in the standard bureaucratic approach is that you're selective in terms of the countries you disconnect from and you do it reluctantly and you do it after, you know, trying to um, exhaust all other alternatives. And, and in a complex crisis, you have to do it all at once. You disconnect completely fast because it travels so fast and it routes around any kind of blockage. Um, you know how easy it is to just change your plane ticket to the route through another city to get to where you're going. And uh, once it's inside, once it, once it reaches you, it's too late and, you know, it has to be of a certain volume. Um, but you have to act early and you have to act drastically. And the countries that had that capability tended to be relatively centralized in their their approach. But they also had physical attributes that made them, made them superior in that regard. Of course, the places, that you know, almost generally across the world, the places that are dealing with it and having problems with it are are the older countries the older sicker countries and it doesn't seem to have the same degree of effect with younger countries and um, it tends towards more of a herd immunity effect where the young people get it they recover quickly they may not even know they have it and they act as kind of a barrier to the virus spreading within the general population i mean places like india they're already starting to see a tail off and um, Africa is is doing pretty good, even with with or without testing. It really doesn't matter. You're not seeing the kind of overf- overflowing hospitals from this, um, the only place in Africa that having problems is Tunisia, and it's it's because it's in you know in the thirties and the median age. So um, that you know that's one of the things that we we found out, but only you know after the effect that it turned one of our strengths into a weakness. Our you know, our, our medical system is our strength, but it ended up being our weakness in terms of uh, setting up the population for this.
1: John, thank you very much for joining us on The Next Billion Seconds. You're welcome. As John Robb pointed out, yes, we may have predicted a pandemic, but we failed utterly to understand any of the consequences. And first among those consequences are the lockdowns and social distancing we've been using to control the spread of the virus. It's work. It's really hard work And it's hard because we are profoundly social. We need to be with one another. We need to talk to one another. We need to observe body language. We need to get a glance from someone else's eye. And we've all had that for all of our lives. And suddenly it's all gone. It's replaced with a screen, which is probably better than nothing at all. But I have to say, after a few months of this I'm feeling like we've all really found the limit of human connection via the screen, and it's nowhere near enough. Now, on series three, one of our guests explained in neurophysical detail why screens are a poor substitute for our experience of one another. Dr. Fiona Kerr is the founder of the Neurotech Institute, where she studies and promotes the benefits of face to face human interactions. Welcome back, Fiona.
0: Hi, lovely to be with you again.
1: So what is all of this excessive screen-based human connection doing to us?
0: The first thing to say is, is yes, technology's been wonderful in allowing us to to still connect um, in ways that we know that we need to. Um, But it also doesn't allow us to connect in, in other ways that we know we need to. So one of the things that's constant is with all of the Zoom meetings and Zoom drinks and Zoom dinners and Google Hangouts, um, that's great. But the other thing that it does is it makes us very cognitively fatigued. So we get very tired because it's so multimodal and we're trying to take in so much information all the time Uh, to figure out what the person is saying and how they're feeling and and all of that kind of data, that we get tired pretty quickly. And if there's more than two or three people on the call, it gets really tricky because you've also got timing and lagging and all of those things that come into it. So um, more and more people I know now are saying, are so over that, we just just want to go back and be in the same room. Um, Another interesting thing is, Some of the the people I know in really highly stressy situations, New York, you know, some of of my friends there, they're preferring to pick the phone up and actually just talk so that they don't use their screen. And that's interesting because we know that with voice, um, as we've talked about before, it synchronises our emotional state. We get, you know, delta, theta, gamma, we get endorphins, we get relaxation and it lowers neural fatigue instead of increasing neural fatigue, which is really interesting. So so there's pros and cons to the various ways that we technologically connect. But now one of the things we need to really think about is let's use the technology for what it's terrific at. So it steps in when we can't have face-to-face and it allows us to have a, a method where we can still touch base and interact, but don't confuse it with what human beings do really Well, which is that direct touch, eye gaze, uh, the neural duet of the neural synchronization, those kind of things which change our physiology, you know, our our very neurophysiology, and when we have the chance to do it. So, some of my work now is around looking at how we are going to balance the two because. Yes, there's been a lot more use of tech and you now get pockets of people who say, terrific, we don't have to go to work now. We can just you know, do things all remotely or we can just switch to straight e-health because that's better than wasting doctors' time coming in to see them. Um, but no, it's not. It's really different. And, of course, there's a lot of people saying, no, no, we want to go back to actually connecting. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's... It's
1: fascinating. One of the things that you and I had talked about is the sort of the generational difference. That in fact, younger folks have never really known a period where they've been disconnected from any of the digital media that we have around them. And I was always wondering if there was some way that we could bring back to them the importance of disconnected, of physically embodied time. And I hadn't suspected that that was going to be one of the benefits of this time when we had all of our physical connectivity so cut off that it makes you acutely aware of its value. Do you think we'll see a different emphasis on the other side of the pandemic around the importance of being there in person as a result?
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So the different age levels, um, there's also all sorts of different issues and benefits bubbling up with with age levels. So with younger people, they're actually not dealing um, any better. In fact, sometimes they're dealing worse with the situation because, and there's a number of things put forward um, to account for that, but what seems to be a a good body of initial, if anyway, initial um, knowledge is that because there's less structure now with young people in you know, setting up definite meetings and parties and those sorts of things. It's much more fluid. One of the things that they relied on heavily was serendipitous interaction, direct interaction. So yes, you have your social media, but there was this constant way that you could also physically interact. You know, you just happened to be there and hang out and that stopped. So whereas older people were also used to periods of being on their own and having to, um, to just content themselves with their own company what we've got is a generation that's not used to doing that I and mean, i know we talked last time about that lack of being able to just cut off technology and be mm-hmm. go inside and be within yourself and in the environment so that's proving quite an issue and it's part of the the increase that we're starting to see in the mental health curve, which is coming behind the COVID curve that we really need to act on early. Um, so, so that's one issue that we've got. We've got a rise in some of the aspects of things like alcoholism. That's got some interesting trends in that you, again, you've got some young people who are increasing drinking, but you've also got kind of early to middle age women who are increasing as well. So there's different interesting pockets of people who were so used to having connection and that's not there. So they're having to try and deal with it in a different way.
1: All right. So what's your best suggestion on how we can give ourselves some of the benefits of connection when we can't actually reach out and touch one another?
0: I think we need to realise that interaction over technology is tiring, that it's not the same. So give ourselves some really good marks and a pat on the back for getting on board and trying all of these constant, you know, Um, being on technology type of activities, because I've got people who are secretly friends who secretly say, I just don't want to refuse yet another (laughs) Zoom drink, but I can't do it anymore. And and they're feeling awful, but they shouldn't. We are retired. Some of the things work fantastically. Things like Zoom choirs. One of the reasons that works well is because you're actually getting the voice resonance and all of those lovely endorphins from something beautiful like singing because when you sing you increase you know wonderful chemicals in yourself so pick and choose as well what you use that technology connection for a friend of mine who's a beautiful writer has started to write letters and it's wonderful to go and pick up from the letterbox a letter from him And it's like a little gem to be able to sit down and read that and not have to deal with it over technology. So that's another lovely thing. And I think when we realise that it's a real gift to be able to spend the time, even if we go and sit that metre and a half away from someone and have the coffee, don't feel silly about wanting to do that. It is a, a really deep need to be able to get all of those kind of neurophysiological you know, chemicals <laughs> that we don't get any other way um, from interacting with people. So think about how you use your time and don't be hard on ourselves as well when we feel that we can't quite put our finger on what's missing. Um, it's because there's a number of things that technology doesn't do. It's a fantastic enabler, but it doesn't replace the direct interaction that we need to, you know, to keep going and to, to keep feeling buoyed up and part of um, a group that we belong to.
1: Thank you, Fiona. Now, when we come back from the break, we'll take a look at another surprising consequence of lockdown. We're using a lot less energy. One of the most unexpected events during this most unpredictable period occurred on the 20th of April 2020 when the May futures contract for West Texas Intermediate crude oil crashed it went from around $20 a barrel to minus 37 Now, yes, that is true. You didn't hear that wrong. They had so much oil on their hands, the traders were literally paying people to take it away and store it. And this happened because, well, basically what? People stopped driving. They stopped flying. They stopped doing many of the things that we do with fuels. And they did it all at once pretty much everywhere in the world. A whole world system designed to deliver to market exactly the right amount of fossil fuels the world needs to keep the engines humming along, that's an amazing resource until you no longer need it, and then it starts bleeding like a punctured artery. And it took more than a month to stop pumping the oil that no one could use and no one wanted to buy. And it will take some time to get all of that production flowing again if we need it. And that's a big if because no one really knows when the international flights will come back or when people will be going for long drives or even commuting every day. So we're in an energy future now that no one predicted. Or rather, we got to an energy future that we knew would come, but it happened maybe a decade or two faster than we'd planned for. Now, back in Series 2, we talked to someone who had actually thought about this energy futurist, Ramiz Nam, and we're coming back to him to talk to him now about the new future for fossils and for renewables. So, Ramez, welcome back. Tell us what you think the post-crisis
3: world of energy is going to look like. Mark, great to be back. I mean, This is just insanity. I've been saying for a while we're going to see a peak of oil demand, not a peak of how much oil we can get out of the ground, but a peak of how much people use. But most of us saying this have been saying 2030, 2035. Now, we might not have really hit that peak today. We might rebound uh, from where we're at now. But right now, the world is using a third less oil than it usually does. 30 million barrels a day less than it usually does. And normally, fluctuations of a couple million barrels a day are enough to send these oil markets gyrating. So this is just unprecedented. But you're right. It is a a foreshadowing of what's going to come. Because eventually, as we electrify transportation, there are 60 million barrels a day that we won't need to be using by the middle of this century. So what's happening now is a very, very rapid, accelerated a preview of what's going to happen to this whole industry decades down the road.
1: We saw there was a report that came out on Reuters, which said that in April, more energy was generated in America using renewables than was for coal. And that's also now another big point, because coal's always been sort of the baseline way that America has generated electricity.
3: Coal was the baseload. It's also the dirtiest fuel on planet Earth. And of course, as your listeners know, it's a major export of Australia. Uh, but what we've seen is in the US, about half of all coal production that we had in place in 2010 was shut down before COVID struck. That's a, a buildup of coal generation that took 28 years, was erased in the US in 11 years because of cheap natural gas and cheap solar and wind. And that is now happening. The UK has now been going almost 30 days, I believe, without using coal, the longest stretch uh, since the the late 1800s. Uh, Europe as a whole is having this happen. And so we see that point, maybe the, the peak of coal consumption starting to arrive in India and China in the coming years as well. Okay, so
1: one of the things that's become very clear as the pandemic has progressed is particularly in the crisis period of the pandemic is that it's been a very rapid accelerator of certain things that we didn't really think were going to happen that quickly, such as a transition away from fossil fuels. Now, as we get back to international travel, which may be years away, we don't know, but as people get back to commuting to work, and we actually know that will happen a bit quicker because people don't want to necessarily ride public transport right now for those same reasons – Will we see the configuration of fuels just sort of slap back to where it was? Will there be a permanent shift in how we use it? Do we think that more people will be working from home? I mean, how is that mix starting to look even over the next, say, five years there?
3: So I'd say we're likely to snap back to mostly where we were, but this event has probably pulled the transition uh, sooner, pulled the peak of oil use earlier. And the path back, even how much oil we were using last year, isn't going to be instant. If you go back to 2018, you look at how many miles Americans drove per year. After the 2018 financial crisis, it wasn't until 2025 that we saw vehicle miles traveled in the U.S. get back to the same level. And so independent of covid like after COVID has passed, whenever that may be, there's going to be some global economic impacts. People who aren't working or who feel more economic anxiety aren't going to be traveling nearly as much. And that's going to have lingering impacts.
1: So we really do now have a very different configuration of the way people are using fuels and the fuels that people are using. And both of those are now colliding at once. That's right.
3: And the, the real tipping point is when is it cheaper to do something with clean energy than dirty energy? And we talked about that with electricity in series two. With electric vehicles, it looks like the purchase price of a new electric vehicle will be cheaper than that of an equivalent gasoline or diesel vehicle by about 2025. And if it's not until 2025 that oil bounces back, that's the beginning of the end,
1: really. Right. And that makes sense because an electric vehicle actually has a lot fewer moving parts that's right than uh an internal combustion vehicle so at some level when you start making a lot of them they start to get a lot cheaper Per unit cost to make. So we can see then, if we just project forward five years, we can very much predict this tipping point where, yeah, maybe oil production is going to get back up to where it is, but just at the point where vehicles have changed so much that they no longer need the oil that's being made.
3: That's right. And so now you see even oil companies saying insane sounding things. Uh, An executive at Shell, I think it was a CFO, said on a call this past week that they weren't sure that oil would demand would ever rebound to where it was last year. And that that's a hell of a thing for one of the largest oil companies on planet Earth to say.
1: Wow. Ramis! thank you so much for joining us on this very special episode of The Next Billion Seconds.
3: Mark, always a pleasure.
1: We brought Series 3 of The Next Billion Seconds to a restful close in conversation with my friend Tiffany Schlein. Now, last year, Tiffany published 24-6 a best-selling book reminding us that it's important to take time out from all of this. A digital Sabbath, a day of unplugging, of reconnecting to us. Back in the world that was, we needed to hear that a lot because we never slowed down, not even for a minute. In the world that is, we're sheltering in place. We're getting the time out that we actually desperately needed. And at the same time, We're still really hungry for news and for connections to others. And now that we can't physically touch one another, those connections feel more important, more vital than they ever had. So now we can stay connected all the time, right? Well... (laughs) (laughs) To talk about that, let's welcome Tiffany Schlein back to the next billion seconds. Welcome back, Tiffany. Okay, so you have been sheltering in place with your own family for, what, two months now? Two months. You know, when we think about the fact that we need to take a time out from our devices, the thing that has changed completely during the lockdowns is that we've in some sense become far more dependent on our devices to maintain our connections with others. How do we now refigure that need to be disconnected with that need to be connected?
4: Yeah, I mean – I'm on online ten times more than normal, and so are my kids and we've relaxed all those restrictions around screens and it's just the new normal, but I will tell you our day we do a full day without screens every week, and it feels like ten times more important now. I look forward to it in the most it it feels like this saving element of my week and as connected as we all are. And and I've seen beautiful moments of humanity. I I actually, my faith in the web, you and I met in the early days of the web, has been restored in a lot of ways. And seeing it being used for such good and collaboration and inspiring people and sharing information and so much, but it's also a lot of stress. It's the news cortisol stress bath all the time. Um, I'm fully exhausted by the end of every day. As much as all the connecting has been fabulous, I find the Zoom is just, it's more exhausting. So I literally feel like I collapse every night. And every Friday night, you know, we'll usually do a Zoom with family from across the country uh, before we shut down. But then all the screens go off and we have a dinner with each other. and, um, And then Saturday, no screens. It is still our favorite day of the week. And I would just say, so much more important because I feel like there's so much to process right now. And when you're online all the time, you're just in a constant state of reacting, connecting, responding. You're in a, in a state of reaction. And to have a day each week, I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of thinking. I do a lot of napping and reading in a way I don't with the phone around. Um, but I feel like we're going to want to know what we were really thinking in and in a, in have creating space To be with yourself, to be with your own thoughts, to think about what's going on, to be present and be really protected from everything. For one day, it is such a rejuvenating thing to do and just resets me and my family and our daughters are, one's almost 11 and one's 17. And we all, it's the favorite day of the week by far.
1: And I have to tell you, because I did exactly that during the, we have a long weekend here for Easter, which is a four day holiday weekend and I completely unplugged. Yeah, and part of it's because that was sort of the peak of all of the news coming out of America and New York and it was just all very sad but it was also because I needed to give myself the space and I have to say after the first 24 hours like I'm not going to turn anything back on because uh, I, I was so hungry for that for that clarity and for that peace that came from I don't actually need to know every single thing that's going on in the world
4: yes and you need to know that the, exactly the effect that has on you to just constantly raise your stress level. Like we know what's going on. We know we need to stay at home to flatten the curve. We know we need to do those things, but do you need a blow by blow second by second of the death count and this outbreak? And no, you're going to get, it's all going to be there when you come back, but to give yourself a full day. And you know, in my book, 24, six, I talk about, Oh, the, the benefits for your, your mental health, the physiology, the neuroscience, creativity, productivity, all this stuff. And of course I wrote this before the pandemic, but it just feels exponentially important now. And, and it's really been funny because people have said to me, oh, are you still, you're probably not still doing that now that it's our only connection point. And I look at them like they're a little crazy, like it's the secret sauce to sanity right now. Exactly. <laughs> this idea that COVID, if you have some pre-existing idea, it's going to expose it. And I think the pre-existing issue, one of them of many in our world is, that people before the pandemic were everywhere and nowhere. They were never present. You'd be with people at dinner and everyone has their phones out. No one's paying attention. And I really hope that after this period, A, we're going to really appreciate being with each other and we'll put our phones away, I hope. B, I hope we will also understand that we have to take true breaks from this very potent network that can uh, change your mood, stress you out, influence your thinking, and take some control back of our own thinking and just sit with yourself, sit with your thoughts, sit with what you're thinking. It's very valuable to mine what's already inside of you. And so often we're just on the network. And I think we need to take, you know, I propose regular breaks. And this is a 3,000-year-old idea for a reason. I think every, every religion has some form of the Sabbath or Shabbat. And I'm just saying, what is it in the modern era and it's just become so much more potent in the pandemic and, and, and will be beyond this.
1: Tiffany, thank you for joining us on The Next Billion Seconds.
4: It is always a pleasure to talk to you, Mark Cresci.
1: This series promises a view into the next billion seconds, 31 years, a generation. And I wish I could give you that long view, but too much has changed too quickly. Right now, the only thing we know is that things are changing. We don't have much of a view, even into the world of 2021. But we can look around at the world today and learn from it. What's survived? What's thrived? What's disappearing? What's already gone forever? We like to think of history as gradual, even the First and Second World Wars, as big as they were, people could feel them approaching in a horrible progression. This pandemic, it feels different precisely because it was so sudden and so total from nowhere to everywhere, from nothing to everything. It's this suddenness. It's a new part of our future. We'll learn to live with it, to adapt to a new normal where things can change completely in the blink of an eye. That's the future from here. Have our conversations in this episode gotten you to thinking about the way the pandemic has changed our future? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website or leave us a message on LinkedIn. Tell us what you want to know about this brand new future and we'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. Big thanks to John Robb, Fiona Kerr, Ramaz Nam, and Tiffany Schlein for coming back onto our show. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, download the Podcast One app or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts.
0: This is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening.